0: I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I moved to Nashville, I, like many others, was introduced to the infamous Tall and Skinny, the townhouse-like dwellings that usually appear two at a time. Now, I had seen modern townhomes before, but what struck me as peculiar was their location, right in the middle of the street with more traditionally designed homes. Why did the street look that way and others don't? In a word, zoning. Zoning boils down to what can and cannot be built on a given plot of land. And in our fast-growing city, it has become a hot-button issue. But what is the process for zoning? And do Nashvilleans truly understand it? Later this hour, we're bringing you a special Citizen Nashville, where we'll ask experts and officials about zoning and have them answer your questions. And you can still get them in. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. But first, early voting is in full swing here in Nashville. There are a number of races on the ballot, including for Metro Council and a couple of state house seats. But many Nashvillians have their eyes on one in particular, the mayor's race. WPLN reports. Producer Cynthia Abrams has been asking the candidates to answer critical questions about the future of our city, as well as examining the latest campaign fundraising totals. She's here with an update now. Cindy, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks, Khalil. Really good to see you. So how is early voting going so far?
1: There seems to be really strong turnout this year. Uh, This past weekend, over 5,000 people cast their ballots, which is more than five times the number of people who voted last year during that first weekend. So numbers are now up to nearly 12,000 early votes, and we've still got over a week left.
0: Why do you think turnout is off to such a strong start?
1: It's likely that this has to do has to do with accessibility. So in past years, you could only cast ballots early at the Howard Office Building for the first several days. But this year, you can vote early at 12 different polling places, and they're all across the city, from the Bellmead City Hall to the Bordeaux Library, all the way up to the Goodlettsville Community Center. So, of course, voters can also cast ballots on Election Day, though they will be restricted to their assigned polling location. And we've seen early voting become much more popular over the years. Sometimes half of voters choose that option, but we won't really know until the end whether this election changes the total turnout.
0: Okay, so we know that this major, this is a major election because we're picking a new mayor and all those Metro Council seats and others, but... You know, there are so many mayoral candidates. How can voters study up on them?
1: There are lots of ways. Um, One way here at WPLN we've always found important is to try to identify the most pressing city needs and really focus there. This time we solicited feedback from our listeners to find out what type of questions they had for candidates and there were dozens of questions. I looked through those responses and narrowed them down to the five most frequently asked about categories. Well, what are those topics? So they were gun violence, affordable housing, public transit, city-state relations, and the environment. Um, and then we went ahead and selected questions directly from listeners on those topics and sent them off to candidates. And we received responses from the bulk of the field. So everybody except Fran Bush and Bernie Cox. Um, and we've published all those responses in full at WPLN.org slash election. And listeners have also been hearing these stories in our newscasts over the past couple of weeks.
0: So are there any of the responses that stick out to you?
1: I found the responses regarding city-state relationships to be pretty enlightening. Um, You know, the legislature passed a host of bills that targeted Nashville this past session. They eliminated police oversight boards, tried to cut the size of Metro Council, and more. So this has been a question for mayoral candidates throughout the race. Um, And so the specific framing we sent to candidates was, how would they shield Nashville from the partisan bullying of state lawmakers? And I've got some highlights here from three candidates, uh, Freddie O'Connell, then Alice Rowley, and finally, Matt Wiltshire.
0: So I'll revisit the relationship between Metro Nashville and the state government. But it needs to come from a place where Nashville understands our value, knows our points of leverage, and asserts our power.
1: I believe it is possible to love both Nashville and Tennessee and our residents benefit when we work together.
0: Now, don't get me wrong. There are a few things the legislature has done that have absolutely enraged me, but nobody is gonna be better off if we throw up our hands and don't talk to one another. That's a tall task for them to kind of smooth over that re- the relationship that the city has with the state legislature. Tell me, what do these responses say about who they are?
1: So you've got Freddie O'Connell, who's a Metro Council member, who has been pretty vocal about the state's overreach into city matters. And he doesn't shy away from a pretty harsh response, as you heard. Um, And that's contrasted with Alice Rowley, who's a Republican political strategist. And while the race is nonpartisan, she offers a more conservative approach and never really condemns state action which is unlike many of the other candidates. Um, and lastly, there's Matt Wilcher, who is a former housing official who has really set himself apart this race, especially when it comes to fundraising totals.
0: Okay, fundraising, the big thing. Tell me more about that.
1: Well, fundraising totals from the second quarter were released last week, and this offers some insight into the success of certain campaigns. Matt Wiltshire raised by far the most during the second quarter. He gathered just over half a million dollars. And so along with Jeff Yarbrough and Freddie O'Connell, um, they he topped the charts for remaining funds going into early voting. That means they appear to have significant spending power still to go. And it's also worth noting that campaign fundraising can still be going on. It's just that we won't get to see those amounts right away.
0: OK, so if Wiltshire has gained raised the most money, has he also spent? The most money. I mean, this would be for TV ads, campaign mailers, things like that, right?
1: Good question. When the fundraising totals were released, it was actually Jim Gingrich, the former Alliance Bernstein executive, who had run the most expensive campaign thus far. He had spent nearly $2 million during this run. Mm. However, he dropped out of the race at the start of the week, leaving Matt Wiltshire at the top of the chart for total expenditures during the second quarter. And we've seen multiple candidates running ads, both online and on TV, like O'Connell, Senator Heidi Campbell, and Councilmember Sharon Hurt.
0: All right. So what should voters know about what comes next?
1: So early voting is still going on at all of all 12 of those polling places. Um, and the website to see those addresses is nashville.gov vote. That runs through Saturday, July 29th. Election day is August 3rd, um, but if no candidate wins over 50 percent of the vote there, there will be a runoff for the top two. Um, and even though we are down one candidate, the field still rounds out to 11, mm. which means a runoff is extremely likely. Um, and if it takes place, it will be held September 14th.
0: That is WPLN producer Cynthia Abrams. You can find the link to her story on this ep- episode's web post at WPLN. .org. Thanks so much, Cynthia. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get you up to speed on zoning in the city. What can you build? Do you have a question about zoning? Let us know by tweeting us at this is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaleole Colona, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. Today we're talking about zoning yay look i know some of you may be saying khalil that's not very exciting but before you zone out all puns forgiven know that zoning can impact your street neighborhood even your place of employment and how much do you know about zoning are you clear on how it works fortunately we have experts here to help clarify zoning and to answer your questions my next guest is a self-taught expert who now teaches others about zoning. Stacy gordon Harmon is the lead teacher at the Planning School with Neighbor to Neighbor and serves as the chairperson of the Highland Heights Neighborhood Association. Stacy, thanks for joining us today and welcome to Citizen Nashville. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Really happy to have you. So I want to start off with a little bit of a vocabulary primer, if you will, because some of these terms are super confusing for folks. And let's start with the big term itself. Zoning, what is it
2: and why is it important? At its most base level, zoning is basically law. It it tells you what you can and cannot do with a property. It tells you where you can orient structures on the property. It tells you how tall your structure can be. It tells you how you can connect to the street network. It tells you all sorts of things. But it basically is the law that governs what you can and cannot do with your parcel. All right. So what about land use policy? How does that differ from zoning? So policy is, is think of it like guidance. Um, it, it's there to guide decisions on what you might be able to do with the property if you rezone it or change the law that governs that piece of property. So it's basically a guidance tool that allows the commission, the planning staff, the council members to weigh what could or could not happen and decide if that's a good use of the land so that they can then effect a change to zoning which is in effect changing the law. Okay,
0: okay, so zoning is, this is the hard facts of what I can and cannot do. Land use policy is a guidelines for maybe how to go about whatever I decide. How to
2: change that law.
0: Okay, That, that makes a lot of sense. But what if I wanna build something different? What is a variance?
2: Well, variance is kind of comes in after the fact. So let's say, for instance, that the law is in place, but there's a hardship or there's something that prevents you from doing a minor change or a minor adjustment to your property that's not permitted by the zoning district that's a, that's in play. You can go to the Board of Zoning Appeals and request a variance or an exception. They'll take a look at the case, and they'll determine whether or not that exception is merited or that that variance is allowed. Okay. That makes... That, that that makes sense. it It comes after the fact, okay. okay.
0: What about an overlay?
2: Overlays basically um, if you think about zoning as layers of an onion, you have base zoning and then you have overlays, uh, different different layers, if you will, that can be applied that further restrict or further regulate what you can and cannot do with a property. So for instance, if let's take historic Germantown, for instance, that's a neighborhood that it has been in existence for quite a while. A historic overlay will prevent older homes from being modified in ways that, that are not in line with the historic nature of that particular neighborhood. So what are some examples of the base layer you mentioned? Well, base layers are um, uh, the basic zoning districts. So, for instance, if you have a zoning district of RS5, that basically means that you are going to build a single-family home on your property. Um, the property has to be at least 5,000 square feet in size, um, and that's kind of the basics. And the different zoning districts determine density for a particular lot. They determine um, you know how high the structure may be. You know, things like that, but that's the base zoning. And then from there, an overlay would then say, okay, well, if you've got a single family home on a 5,000 square foot lot, you're in a historic overlay, and that home is, let's say, you know, built in the 1890s, you can't go in and put vinyl windows in it. Mm-hmm. So it's it just, it's another layer of regulations and restrictions that ensure that the that the feel and look of the neighborhood... are are in play. Okay. All these layers of the onion, man, I see why people cry about
0: zoning. (laughs) So, all right. Finally, what about a specific plan or
2: SP as it's more commonly known? So um, that is kind of an, for lack of a better term, an aberration. It doesn't fit any particular category. And because it is site-specific, that zoning is put in play when you want to do something that's a little outside the box, or you want to have some some components of one type of zoning district or components of another type of zoning district, and and you want to combine them to build something unique, that zoning district only applies to that one piece of property, if you will. So once it becomes law, though, that the confines of that particular SP have to be followed through. So, for instance, if somebody were to put an SP zoning district in play um, and it's approved, but they sell that property, the new owner has to build exactly what was detailed in the SP, okay? or they have to go through and rezone it to a different SP or to a base zoning. Yeah, but it is a, it's a unique zoning district for a specific parcel. How often does that happen? Uh, not as often lately. But there for a while, (laughs) it was was like every time you turn around, there were SPs. All
0: right. Thank you very much for clearing up and giving us that quick vocabulary lesson. You are a self-taught expert in this, right? Yeah, Very much so. Why did you, what made you want to learn so much about zoning?
2: (laughs) A rezoning application that came in almost in my back door. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to put it frankly, it it struck me as a bit more dense than it should have been. Um, So I started asking questions and learned that things had been happening in the neighborhood that I had been blind to, my own fault, really, for not paying attention. Um, and I got really involved with some of the other neighbors and going down and talking to the planning staff and showing up at planning commission meetings and listening to the, to the proceedings and engaging with the different um, stakeholders in the process. Uh, and I just I learned as much as I possibly could so that I could speak intelligently. And if I'm going to argue against a particular project or for a particular project, I want to make sure I know how I can frame my argument to hopefully be convincing. You took all that knowledge
0: and you created, you started the planning school. What led you to found that?
2: Well, I didn't necessarily start it myself. Uh, That was a project that uh, Neighbor to Neighbor had undertaken. Um, It all stemmed from a think tank that was formed, uh, I believe it was in 2018, is that right, Ingrid? I believe it was 2018. The think tank took different neighborhood leaders from all over the city and planning staff and council members kind of put them all in a room. And we discussed some of the barriers on why people have challenges knowing things about zoning and planning. What can we do to better communicate? And we put together a punch list of things that we would like to see happen over the course of the next few years. And the planning school came out of that. One of those was an education component, because let's face it, if you're ignorant of what's going on and you don't have the the knowledge base to be able to talk planning, you, you feel very much isolated and you feel like you don't have a voice at the table. So the planning school was put in play to address that and to, to teach neighborhood leaders, anybody that was interested, the language, the process. Now, my next guest is a graduate of the planning school and now serves as
0: a co-teacher there. Ingrid Campbell is a community advocate for the McFerrin Park neighborhood and a former guest of the show. Ingrid, thanks for being here. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank
3: you, Khalil.
0: You know, you're deeply, deeply involved in your neighborhood. But Tell me, why did you enroll in the planning school?
3: Well... As being a member of McFerrin Park community, I believe that I should be engaged or at least have some knowledge base. Things were happening around me and didn't really understand what was going on and found out that I didn't understand because maybe I didn't speak that language of what was occurring. And that language happened to be zoning, you know, really understanding how this actually occurs, how how does the Department of Planning engage with the community, and how does the community respond back or engage their council person? Mm -hmm. So that's what happened with me, and that's why I started to like, hmm, I need to educate myself. And then I found out that we have, through Neighbor to Neighbor, we have a program which helps educate people you know to understand, especially as a president at one time of McFerrin Park community.
0: Mm-hmm. Shout out to neighbor to neighbor; they are friends of the show. Now, what did you learn that truly surprised you when you were going through the planning school?
3: I learned that I could be, as a resident, my my land, my property is residential. Next door, I would think it's residential because there's a house there, mm-hmm. but don't didn't realize that the property may be uh, cited as commercial or it may be multifamily, even though there's only one family living there. And see, when you don't know that and someone sells that property and then they start building based on what the current zoning that they're allowed to do, then people are up in arms like, why are they building two tall and skinnies or whatever Mm -hmm. on the property next to me? How is that possible? And then you realize this is part of zoning, this happened, you know, go back, understand, know what the limits are, know what to expect, you know, and that's what I realized I had to educate myself. But in turn, I also need to educate the community.
0: You know, the scenario you pointed out about, you know, someone moving and uh, tall and skinny is being erected, that is a signal and a sign of the city growing very, very rapidly. What do you have, what concerns do you have as the city grows?
3: Well, the concern I have is that uh, for people who well, for people who are seniors or elder or have some um, restrictions as far as their ability to uh, hold on to their property and feel like they're being kind of moved out in order so that someone can do multiple units on their land and not getting the full value or understanding what the property value is. It was one of my concern. The other concern is people. I realize in my community there is a, a large senior population, and so what are we doing? We're knocking down houses that are one story, and some of them historic homes, like Sears Homes and uh, and so forth, that are being just kind of demolished, and we're replacing with something that that senior or someone with limited mobility cannot really accessed all three flights of the the structure. Mm -hmm. So who are we really building for? Are we really building for um, someone in another category only, or are we building for a community that spans different age groups, different capabilities?
0: My next guest is a planning expert and understands how zoning affects the entire city. Melina Springer is an East End resident and works as a consultant with Pillars Development. Melina, thanks for being here and welcome to This is Nashville.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: You know, I understand that you were interested in changing some zoning near you from an R6 to an M20. And I'm not talking about models of Mazdas, but first (laughs) tell us, what do those codes mean, R6 and M20? Um,
4: So first, uh, it's RM20. Okay. Um, So... Um, our our council member suggested um, and is putting forth a proposal to rezone our street. Uh, It's currently, I think, some RS5, R6, um, and to rezone those to RM20. So I I believe at the beginning, Stacy mentioned that the RS means single family only. On my side of the street, it's R6. So you can have Uh, one and two units on the lot. So on my street, we have some older homes, single family homes on a lot. And then we have a few HPRs, horizontal property regimes, which sometimes look like tall and skinnies on our lot. It kind of just looks like duplexes. Mm -hmm. Um, And what they're proposing or what he's proposing is RM20, which would allow 20 units per acre. So that would increase the density on our
0: lots. Okay. So why is it important to know the difference between those codes?
4: Well, I think it, it can be scary to people if you just see these numbers and letters and all you're knowing is you're seeing what's going on around Nashville. You're seeing that density, density, density. So seeing multifamily, I think people think what you're seeing downtown and in the Gulch, where it's just, you know, big glass buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, but with RM20 and with the size of the lots that we have on that block currently, it wouldn't allow for that deep of an increase in density. It would be more of a gentle increase in density.
0: A gentle increase in density. That's a that's got a ring to it. Now, if you're just <laughs> tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville and I'm your host, Kaliola Colonna. We're talking this hour about zoning. My guests are Stacy Gordon Harmon, Ingrid Campbell Campbell, and Melina Springer. You can tweet us your questions at this is Nashville. Now, Melina, you also you work for a city planning company and some people in Nashville they do see the developers as the evil empire. But in your mind, what do people misunderstand about developers when it comes to zoning?
4: So I think where we're missing, so a lot of the work I do is community engagement around planning and development projects. So a lot of what I do is try to educate um, the public about what this can mean for them. So I think part of what is misunderstood is that developers are not, always the bad guys um yes obviously they want to pad their pockets a little bit but as uh as citizens as neighbors as residents of the city we can be empowered by what stacy and ingrid have talked about earlier uh, in this segment to speak to the developers if we have the the knowledge if we have the if we know the lingo if we know what we want as a neighborhood we can use zoning by going through rezoning processes to create in our neighborhood what we would like to see. So we can we can create, we can rezone this to RM20 so someone doesn't come in later and put in a PD that increases the density to some insane amount. So we need to empower ourselves.
0: What's a PD?
4: Uh, so that's a, a plan development. So wow. where they can come in and yes, and just, uh, make it whatever they want. Not whatever they want. Obviously, they have to work with the planning department. But yes, where a developer comes in and kind of builds out his own um, desire for that
0: lot. All right. So with this understanding, people's fears can be assuaged with a, just a little bit more knowledge about zoning and how it works. And Ingrid, you've developed a really un, a solid understanding of zoning. What have you been able to do with what you've learned?
3: Well, well, <clears throat> one of the things that we were able to do is to is, like Melina said, is work with the developer and understand, like, we... I know what planning says you can do, Mm -hmm. but let's work on what works best for the community as well as what your development ideas are. You know, um, having 1,500 units on a piece of property in that neighborhood, though it sounds great and we want to increase density... Is it really something that you want to do for the community? So by working with the developer, working with the community, uh, coming with uh, and planning is really uh, coming to a conclusion that we should really find something that's common ground for everybody that we can agree upon. And the number, this particular instance went from 1,500 to like 1,100. Okay. So that uh, worked out well. And I think it's not a 100% win for anyone. It -hmm. is a compromise. So uh, that's the other thing you learn. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk about infamous zoning meetings. We sent our producer, Char Dotson, to a Q and A session in that's part of me to Q to and A Q&A session in East Nashville earlier this week. Council member Brett Withers of the sixth district talked about a plan for development along Davidson Street. The developers could build one giant seven-story building, but neighbors want more access to the river and a possible greenway extension that could come through this area. In exchange for that access in the form of gaps and between buildings, neighbors want to build higher, up to 20 stories. Councilman... Developers, pardon me, want to build higher up to 20 stories. Sorry about that, y'all. Council member withers laid this compromise out, but one attendee pushed back. Let's listen to what they said.
1: So you're asking people to trade a greenway for higher buildings. So I, so that really concerns me. I don't I feel that's disingenuous to say, okay, we're, we're we're going policy will guide zoning. Well no, in this case I think developers are 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 pushing whatever zoning they want.
0: Seems like proposals are often presented as a trade-off. The community gets something they want in exchange for something the developer wants, like you mentioned, Ingrid. You know, Melina, how do you feel about these trade-offs?
4: I mean... (laughs) I'm, I'm always torn um, because, like you said, I am a planner by education, by trade, um, so I understand the need for these trade-offs, especially now. I, I used to work a lot on the city side, on the government side, and now working for private development firms, so I understand the need for trade-offs to make projects work in terms of the finances, um, but I think what's missing a lot of times is the the deep conversations. Like I understand that council members are busy, um, that developers are busy, that people are busy, that having community meeting after community meeting can get exhausting. But I think what Ingrid brought up earlier about how her neighborhood worked to decrease the number of units, I think genuine engagement with the neighbors, with the people impacted is needed. Coming in and saying, oh, 20 stories versus seven stories is going to be a shock to anyone. So just be gentle about the way that we're educating people and talking to people about the changes that are being
0: proposed. Mm. Now, community import is super important, but, and after that contentious meeting, council member Brett Withers said he wanted even more input from the community. Let's
3: listen once the signs go out uh, about a rezoning, suddenly people get really, really interested. Uh, And especially when something's on an agenda like that, that level of interest gets really, really high at the end. And I wish that more people would participate at the beginning of that process.
0: Ingrid, do you have any ideas of how to get more people to participate early on in the process? And do you think that people are given enough opportunity to know that they can take part in this process?
3: Oh, wow, I'm living this right now um, in the neighborhood. So the thing is, I think we need to do everything possible to get people uh, engaged. We have people who are part of the Neighborhood Association who come to monthly meetings. Fine, they will be there for the next meeting, meeting after that. You need to engage those who do not attend. for whether, For whatever reason that they do not attend, maybe it's historical, maybe it's just they're not able physically. Maybe they're just limited in getting the communication that's that notifies them that there is a meeting. We need to engage them. So what do you need to do? Go out. Sometimes you have to knock on doors. I had to do that. You, know, you get a knock on doors. Sometimes you have to go where they are, be it through a church that's in the community. Can the, can the church uh, engage some of these neighbors? Sometimes it's just talking to a neighbor who has a small clique that they, they associate with um, for the last 30 years, and they can pass on the word. But it's important that you do your Due diligence to com- communicate to people, um, and it's brought to my attention recently that that you have people who are unable to read small print, so you want to, you know, you have to take that in consideration. Larger print items. So, as a developer, yes. I believe it's not just going to the neighborhood association. You need to reach those who do not attend because your association may only get you 10% of the people in that community and you get the other 90% and you know, you don't, who, who's you know the dog, the tails wagging the dog, the dogs mm-hmm. wagging.
0: It's so. You know, I, I I've heard situations and stories of notification of a development meeting coming up on Friday afternoon, and that meeting is on Tuesday. To me, that doesn't seem like a sufficient amount of time to get to everybody. Stacy, what can what can be done to better inform people about the meetings that are coming Ooh. up so more people can participate?
2: That was actually one of the concerns that was brought up in the think tank sessions that we had. Um, Starting back in 2018, was how do we improve the noticing that's going out so that more residents are aware of things and they're not learning about it last minute? And one of the one of the tools we recommended was expanding the notification range. Um, I think it used to be 600 feet. Yeah. Um, and you think of some of these larger parcels in more rural parts of of Nashville, you might only have one or two people notified of a rezoning. Um, so we worked with the planning department, and they almost doubled the distance so that more notices would get sent out. But part of what we teach in the planning school are some of the resources that are available online. You don't have to wait to get a notice. Um, You can go into some of the tools and take a look at things that are proposed. As soon as the applications are turned in, usually within a couple of days, those notices or those entries into the tools that are available are there. And so people can find that information um, but teaching them where to look hmm. is just as important as sitting and waiting on a postcard or word of mouth, or you see a zoning sign. There are indications that something is happening a lot earlier than that if you know where the tools are and how to access them and how to decipher them.
0: Now, Molina, you have an interesting vantage point. You see this from all three angles. Again, as you said, you worked with city planning and development. You are a resident and you work for a developing company. So Tell me this, how can neighbors, how can they help each other to understand more about zoning?
4: Um. So I think like what both Stacy and Ingrid already said about being engaged with your neighborhood association, up until last year, I would have been a hypocrite saying that because last year is when I finally started getting involved with my neighborhood. But um, talking to your neighbors is a huge thing. And I, I think that's what I really value about my neighborhood. It is a very small neighborhood. And so when stuff comes up, I talk to all my neighbors along my along my block and obviously they use me because this is my profession and I think it's helped to quell a lot of the fears. When I first shared with them that there was going to be, there's a proposal to rezone to RM20, there was just a lot of, so what does this mean? Are our homes getting torn down? Just a lot of fear. So I think talking to each other and then also, like Stacey said, they're online, there are a lot of resources. Um, Nashville has a, a map showing rezoning applications, showing development, things like that. So you can check online um, oh, yeah. and again, talk to your neighbors, a lot of talking to your neighbors and, and using the resources that you have at your fingertips.
0: I want to thank my guests, Melina Springer, resident of East End and a consultant with Pillars Development, and Ingrid Campbell, community advocate for the McFer- McFerrin Park neighborhood and co-teacher at the Planning School with Neighbor to Neighbor. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Stacy gordon Harmon will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll bring on a Metro official to talk about zoning and have them answer your questions. There's still time to get them in, so tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Kaleel Lake-Alona, and this is Citizen Nashville. This hour, we we are talking about zoning in our city. Before the break, we talked about some of the basics, learned some of the vocabulary around zoning, and ways that community members can learn more about the process. Now let's invite a city official to answer your questions about zoning and how it affects Nashville. I'd like to welcome Lisa Milligan. Assistant Director of Land Developments with the Metro Planning Department to the show. Lisa, thanks for being here and welcome to Citizen Nashville.
5: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, before we really get to our listeners' questions, can you briefly just tell us a little bit more about your job at the Planning Department?
5: Sure. So I oversee the land development team, which is the team that reviews sort of current projects. You can think about it as projects that are imminently happening. So we have a long-range team that looks at longer-range growth of the city. And then we have the current planning team that's looking at projects that could be expected to be built relatively quickly. And so that's the team that I oversee. We're dealing a lot with uh, rezoning requests, and my team is the team that reviews those requests and makes recommendations on them.
0: All right. So you sound like the perfect person for this episode. I hope so. Okay. All All right, Stacey gordon Harmon from the Planning School is still with us. Thank you again, my friend, for being here. So let's get to some listener questions. Here is a question from a listener who's wondering why single-family homes are so dominant in Nashville.
2: Hi, my name is Justin, and I live in Bellevue. I'd like to know why we can't build more housing types in residential areas
0: like duplexes and quadruplexes. Also, why can't we build things like accessory dwelling units in more locations? All right. Justin's question is important because, you know, denser housing can mean more affordable units. Lisa, why is it hard to build houses for more than one family?
5: so if you look at the zoning of Nashville about 40 percent of the county is zoned exclusively for one or two family and so you've got a large chunk of the county that is limited in the way that it in the um, number of units that it permits per lot um, a lot of that is driven by um, some of the goals that are in our long-range plan Nashville next um, which is the community's guide for the future um, but we have created in the last several years some tools that can be used Utilized to allow for additional housing, such as the detached accessory dwelling unit overlay. That's an overlay that can be placed on um, single-family zoned areas that would allow for the construction of smaller accessory units. Um, and so, that's a new tool that we have. And so, we're always looking at ways that we can do um to allow for more housing but also balance um, the goals of the community
0: as well so when you say smaller accessory units mm-hmm. are you meaning I can convert a garage into a unit to live in or maybe build a tiny home on my property
5: that's right yes so you could it, it could take a lot of different forms the the main goal of it is that it be subordinate to the main house and so it could be a gra- apartment over a garage it could be an accessory structure that is just for living um, and so that is an option and we're seeing more of those being built um, in our more urban areas, especially the areas where we have alleys.
0: Okay. All right. Let's get to another question. This one comes from William Crawford. He asks, quote, Will zoning benefit someone of color from the low-income-slash-poor class here in town like me, or will it benefit someone rich as usual? End quote. Stacey?
2: Well, I think it's important to remember that that zoning um, zoning in itself – doesn't take into account race, socioeconomic demographics, things of that nature. It, it is, it is a legal structure, right? So, if if one particular family wants to do something and they're allowed by zoning, by the zoning district that they're in to do it, they can do it if they have the resources and they can get the permits to build and such. You know, they can do it. Um, it 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 has no distinction um, if if. Um, you know, one particular family owns a property and they want to do this, and one particular family over here owns a property and they want to do the same or something different, it's going to be dependent on what the zoning districts are. And if you don't have the proper zoning to do what you want, that's where the rezoning application and process comes in to try to change that law. But the law doesn't care if you're black, white, Hispanic, doesn't care if you're rich or poor, if if you have the wherewithal and the resources to be able to do it and you have an entitlement already in existence, you can do it. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. OK, we got this tweet at this is Nashville from user Sans Comic Sans says, quote, SP is often routinely abused as an up zoning technique that end runs around neighborhood character and land use policy and accelerates gentrification and displacement. Talk about that, please. End quote. Stacy.
2: Well, it's. I don't look at it as necessarily an end around. Um, it is a way to accomplish certain things that, in the in the past, didn't allow um, didn't allow certain things and it allowed others. Uh, a case in point, specific zone or specific plan zoning. Um, you you have to build what's in that particular zoning application. Okay, when before we put in. Um, a special set of zoning districts that specifically exclude short-term rentals, that had to be written into the law if you were going to allow short-term rentals or not. Um, and that was a tool that that was able to be used to help restrict short-term rentals or to approve them for certain areas. Um, getting back to the original question... It's it's not always about higher density. It may be about mix of uses. It may be about allowing a use for a particular property like a DADU. Before we had the DADU overlay, that was the only way that you could put a DADU in play was to actually have a rezoning application that would allow you to build something like that. Now, with the tool of the DADU overlay, we don't have to utilize an SP to do something like that. So it doesn't always mean that it's going to be higher density, it's going to be um, uh, detrimental to the neighborhood. Specific plan zoning can actually be beneficial when you know what you're dealing with and you know how to to negotiate what can and cannot be included.
0: Therefore, it behooves you to go to the planning school. All right. So, you you know, one, one of our listeners says she's been hearing a lot about zoning policy from our candidates for mayor. She's wondering about some of the things they've said. Let's listen. My name is Melissa Cherry, and I've been to a lot of mayoral forums this election cycle, and the smartest candidates tell us that the best way to fix housing in Nashville is to change our zoning policies. But uh, I would like to understand what that entails, like what are the mechanisms that need to be enacted to change our zoning rules, and who and what offices
5: are involved in that process.
0: Okay, so Lisa, if we do wanna change our zoning policies, what's the process for that?
5: So there's a couple of different things when we're talking about changing zoning. We can be talking about changing the actual zoning designation of a land, or we can be talking about changing the actual zoning code. So in other words, changing the rules of zoning. So for instance, um, in the not too distant past, um, Council Member Colby Sledge um, had an amendment that went through um, and amended the zoning code that removed parking minimums from the UZO. So what that means is that someone could build without having to have parking spaces. And we have heard that that is sometimes a barrier, especially for Uh, multifamily projects in like the four to eight range. And so providing parking can be a barrier to building that form of housing. And Mm so by removing that minimum, you're opening up the door for the option of other types where there may be getting past that barrier. So that's one thing. And so we can look at certainly um, changing the zoning, especially along arterial and collectors corridors um, to allow for more density but we can also look at tweaks to the zoning code that can remove some of the barriers that might be preventing the the building of more housing
0: okay here's a message from listener Israel he asks quote why are there minimum square footages for buildings a structure for building a structure in my backyard he goes on to add quote I'm forced to hurt the environment building too large of an office Lisa can you answer that
5: Uh, I think I mean typically we don't we require minimum um, lot sizes, but not typically um, square footage requirements of buildings unless that's something in the building code that I'm not, that I'm not aware of. But zoning doesn't t- typically dictate what size a building has to be; it only tells you what size it can be. So Mm -hmm. it's setting maximums, not minimums.
0: Okay. You know, he's talking about the environment. Our environmental reporter here at WPLN, Caroline Eggers, has been researching environmental impact of building projects, and she's wondering how could the city do a better job considering climate when it makes zoning decisions? Lisa?
5: Sure. I think some of the things that we can look at and some of the work that we have done is looking at our Uh, landscaping and tree requirements. So we're looking at where you can um, require that more trees be built or more trees be planted onto properties, especially with new uh, projects. We can look at inclusion of street trees, which certainly help in our um, more urban environments to create shade on the wonderful sidewalks that are getting built with projects. And so those are some of the things that we can do. We also can look at um, some of our stormwater standards and how we are handling stormwater runoff and the treatment of that stormwater so that we can make projects be more environmentally sustainable.
0: All right. We have a question from Eric Hoke, who lives in the Eastwood neighborhood. He's also design director at Civic Design Center. Let's hear. When this prompt came up about zoning, I thought about how I wished a recent development near me was better about providing community assets. in its design, and so my question is, why doesn't Nashville have better incentives for developers to provide community assets like transportation amenities, sustainable buildings, public spaces, and more density where it's appropriate to create affordability? Thanks. Okay, so Lisa, what incentives can the Metro government offer to encourage developers to build things like affordable housing or sustainable architecture?
5: So the affordable housing question is as a really sticky one because there is um, state legislation that actually prohibits um, Metro from considering the provision of affordable housing when we're looking at zoning. Mm. And so if a developer comes in and says, "I want to build 300 units and they're all going to be affordable," and so you should support my rezoning because it's all affordable, we actually can't consider that in our deliberations because of the state law that's, that that really sort of restricts us. What we can do is look at a rezoning holistically, and we can look at, is there a needed greenway connection? Do we need to have the sidewalks widened? Is there a connection that we can make off site with a sidewalk that will connect it to um, a retail area or a school? What, to, what to sort of bike lanes um, are needed? And so we can always be looking at those sorts of the benefits, even if we can't necessarily look directly at the provision of affordable housing.
0: All right. Now, Stacy, this next question comes from one of our fellow journalists, Adam Friedman of the Tennessee Lookout. He asks, quote, does Nashville need to update its historic zoning laws? Are they slowing the process for new rental and housing units? End quote.
2: Well, I don't know if it's the zoning laws that need to be updated, possibly updates to land use policies that would... Because the, the way land use policies are similar to zoning, they're different layers. Um, and when you take a look at a, you know, one of the terms that we learn about in the planning school is a transect. It just des- describes a certain section of Nashville and applies some guidance and overall concepts to that particular neighborhood, and you can change a neighborhood from, say, a maintenance policy where it's kind of, you know, business as usual to a more um, aggressive policy like a neighborhood evolving where now the guidance changes from maintaining status quo to we're going to make some more wholesale changes to the neighborhood. And if the land use policies are acceptable, um, they're an easier sell if you need to make changes to it's, it's not necessarily zoning, but mm-hmm. it's the the land use policies um, that that can affect the bigger change. All right. Last question. We have just
0: about a minute left. Speaking of history, we got another tweet at This is Nashville from Neil part Pardon me. Quote, could we have Lisa speak to the historical impacts that zoning has had on different races? End quote.
5: Sure. I think that. Um we have seen a real historic or we've seen a real impact, particularly um, in Nashville related to redlining, which has more to do with like lending as opposed to zoning. And so you can actually see maps um, and we've got some historical data on on the impacts that redlining has had on development and home ownership in the city. Um, from a, a zoning pers- perspective, um, we have seen um, traditionally really just a lot of single family zoning being applied across um, across large swaths of Nashville and not necessarily um, by any sort of racial demographics of, uh, across the city. And so um, I, I think redlining has been more of an issue in Nashville than particularly zoning as it
0: relates to that. All right. I want to thank you both for being here. Lisa Milligan is the Assistant Director of Land Developments with the Metro Planning Department, and Stacey gordon Harmon is the Lead Teacher at the Planning School with Neighbor to Neighbor. Again, thanks to both of you for being here and being on the show
2: today. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Char Dotson and Elizabeth Daston, pardon me, and Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at This Is Nashville or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Kalona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. back.